Welcome to Second Opinion Live on ReachMD Radio XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. And I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg. Today we're focusing on the aftermath of the March 11th earthquake in Japan. This was the most powerful earthquake in Japan's history, registering 9.0 on the Richter scale, and it triggered a tsunami that wiped out entire seaside cities and flattened rural farms in the northern part of the country. Several nuclear reactors were also damaged in the quake, and the country now deals with a rapidly changing nuclear crisis on top of the natural disaster. Thousands of people are confirmed dead so far, and tens of thousands more are still missing. Meanwhile, over 400,000 people are living in shelters and struggling to get food, water, and medicine. In the words of Japan's Prime Minister, this is their country's worst crisis since World War II. Our program today is geared to help us put these events in context from a healthcare perspective. We'll have several guests join us to add their perspectives on the next steps, including Dr. Susan Briggs, Director of the International Trauma and Disaster Institute at Massachusetts General Hospital and Editor-in-Chief of the American Journal of Disaster Medicine, Dr. Makoto Iwahara, President of the Japanese Medical Society of America, and Dr. John P. Howe, President and CEO of the U.S.-based international healthcare organization, Project Hope. There's a lot to cover today on this show, so let's go straight to our first guest, Dr. Susan Briggs is a general and trauma surgeon at Massachusetts General Hospital and director of the International Trauma and Disaster Institute at MGH. She's editor-in-chief of the American Journal of Disaster Medicine and the editor of the Advanced Disaster Medical Response Manual for Providers. Dr. Briggs has participated in numerous national and international disaster relief efforts. Dr. Briggs or Susan, it's really good to have you with us today. Very nice to be here with you. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you, Dr. Briggs. Your international medical surgical response teams have been called into action for both natural and man-made disasters across the world. But in the wake of everything that's hit Japan, are they even calling for outside medical relief right now? No, they are not. Japan is very different in that they have an excellent medical infrastructure that was not destroyed in much of the country. So what they're really calling for and their key priorities, which I think are correct, our search and rescue teams, and in fact, the United States sent two large search and rescue teams, and logistics, food, shelter, um, clothing, helicopters, and our U.S. military is responding outstandingly. We were on alert in the event that they requested help, but they felt at this time they did not need help. Is it likely that they're going to need international help? I mean, they have such a strong healthcare system and their disaster response infrastructure. Uh, we've been reading some blogs, and it's just astounding that people just follow directions there, and things got done the way that they should have. Think they will need us? I suspect they will not need us in the acute phase. I think there may be a real role for some of the nonprofits, such as John Howe. I actually have worked with Hope for 25 years in other disasters. Uh, we'll be speaking to you about. But I think at this point, they seem to have adequate medical help. Their biggest challenge is trying to move people out of the contaminated area. Unfortunately, as opposed to Haiti and some other earthquakes where you had a lot of earthquake injuries, most of the people were killed with the tsunami in the area of northern Japan. So we're seeing a much higher balance of people deaths to people living. And I'm going to beat this over everybody's head this whole show, so I, I know it's not your forte, but they do need money. They do need money. And I think one of the things, having responded to many, many disasters, starting in Armenia, to Bamaran, to Haiti, 
um, as well as other tsunamis um, in Indonesia, is that you really need to look critically, not at what you want to do, but what a country needs. You don't want to be a burden on a country that's already devastated by the disaster. And very clearly, Japan is just overcrowded as they try to move all these people both from the radiated area as well as the tsunami area as well as the earthquake area. So money really is critical at this point. I think they will identify where there are pockets of need, and I know everybody in the United States and certainly in other countries stands by ready to help if they feel they do need that help. Well, let's talk about the triple threat nature of this crisis. We have the earthquake, the tsunami, and now this radiation exposure. How does that affect response protocols? I mean, is there any way to prepare for this many challenges at once? Well, I think what it did is it's always difficult to know what to send first based on what injuries you're going to see. But I think with the information coming out about the devastating tsunami, which in many ways was worse than the earthquake, individuals felt that what they would be seeing is large amounts of people, many of them dehydrated, many of them... uh, given the temperature in Japan now, as I understand it, uh, very, very cold, that you're more likely to see many more baseline conditions like this than you were actual fractures, et cetera. Certainly the blast, and, you know, with a, a nuclear meltdown, you can really see three types of injuries. You can see blast injuries, and we hope there are not going to be many of those. They've evacuated people. You can see burns. And you can then see the radiation injury. So it's really a triple hit when you have a reactor. But I think what they're seeing now is is very much um, the people who survived both the earthquake and tsunami. And that's a triple hit, a double hit to survive. Right. Let's talk specifically about the disaster medicine protocols around radiation. I mean, I've been watching the news, and it changes from minute to minute. One minute they say, well, they've evacuated the workers, and the next minute the workers are back in the plant, and they're moving people around. What do we know at this time about those workers who are working to contain the situation at the reactors? Or is it just changing, like I said, fluxing every minute? Well, I think one of the difficulties when you listen to the news is they don't really distinguish for you the two types of radiation injuries, and they're very different. The first is external radiation, and that's a major component of what the people at the reactor are experiencing. This is radiation that goes through the body. And these people presumably, although we have no data, are in very heavily protected type of what we call personal protective gear, masks, Uh, internal respirators. The second is particle radiation. If you remember the reports of the military helicopters bringing relief to the area and suddenly their radiation detectors went off. This is radiation dust. And if you protect yourself with a mask and you take off your clothes and take a soap and water bath, that's all you need to do. It doesn't penetrate through the body, but it can be inhaled, ingested, or absorbed. So that's why they have all the people in Japan with a mask. So the people at the very close site who are the workers are exposed to both type, and I presume that's why when the levels got so high, they had them move out. But also they were, in addition to the radiation, they were at risk for the blast and thermal injuries from the explosion. 
And I would presume, although I don't know any hard data, but just looking at the pictures, that that was a major risk to him and one of the reasons they told him to move out, not just the radiation, because those were fairly large explosions. So I think there's Japan is very well prepared with their people. They're probably far more prepared with their population than we are. And, in fact, our disaster book is actually printed in Japanese, and I've sent a number of people the, the modules on the radiation illness at their request, and they really practice and, and they know the risk and they move the people out of the immediate area. So that's why they're not at risk right now for this direct radiation. But if the wind shifts, they may be at risk to the particle radiation, which is what they're seeing when they talk about some down in the area of uh, Tokyo. So you have to distinguish between those two, but also with the blast and the thermal injuries that are occurring at the site of the radiation. So that's why I think there's sometimes conflicting information. But if you look at those, you understand why they're moving their workers away. And presumably the risk from the blast and the thermal is lower now, and so they're dealing with just the radiation. Okay, one short last question. We only have a moment here. There's been a lot of public concern about that radiation floating over toward our continent. Any truth to that? Do we need to worry, yes or no? Well, I'm not an expert, but I would say very low probability. You're talking particle radiation, and unless something else dramatically happens where you had a huge plume of radioactive dust, it would be very unlikely it would travel that far. And they were using ranges like 12 millisieverts of exposure versus 1,000 for those right on site. Is that right? Yes. And that's, you know, radiation illness is really a combination of what your shielding is. Presumably the workers have a lot of shielding. How much exposure you have in terms of time and what the dose of the radiation is. And that's why you wear radiation monitors when you work in a radiology lab. So we see people also in the news sealing their houses with tape around the windows. Is that effective, what they're doing? It may be. I mean, the key thing you don't want to do is have air conditioning or something that's drawing this dust, this radiation dust, into your house. So obviously, if you have an airtight house, it's not going to get in, which is why they're telling people to stay in. But if you don't, this may be one of the times that duct tape actually has a, a role. Yeah, we love duct tape in the studio. I love duct tape, too. But it doesn't do much for you with chemical problems. No, I assume not. And there are some medical response teams that have been initially put into play around Hawaii and Alaska. Do you think that's premature? No, we want... Our international team is actually part of the National Disaster System, which is a your U.S. disaster system with over 7,000 volunteers. And we were put on alert in the event that they needed help. Japan actually has disaster medical assistance teams very similar to ours. They're not as organized in terms of a national system, but they have teams. And, in fact, we have three of our emergency room doctors who are now over there because two of them are Japanese from that area, and one was speaks Japanese and worked in that area for two years. So they went over to augment the disaster medical assistance team. Well, thank you for joining us. And Dr. Susan Briggs, who is director of the International Trauma and Disaster Institute at Massachusetts General Hospital and editor-in-chief of the American Journal of Disaster Medicine. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Our next guest is Dr. Makoto Iwahara. Dr. Iwahara is a gastroenterologist and president of the Japanese Medical Society of America, which is based in New York City. 
Dr. Iwahara, welcome to Second Opinion Live. Oh, thank you very much for inviting me. Have you been in touch with any medical professionals working directly with the disaster response in Japan? Yes. Uh, in fact, our society uh, has been in touch with a nurse in Boston uh, who is in direct touch with uh, certain physicians uh, who are Japanese physicians practicing in, uh, in that area, as well as volunteers from the United States. And uh, some of those physicians have been filing reports. Um, and uh, it looks like a war zone there, at least from their description. Uh, in fact, uh, the many of the hospitals have been damaged by the earthquake, if not by the tsunami. And uh, obviously, since there are so many patients uh, who have injuries uh, and trauma from uh, the damage that they sustained, as well as the, uh, those with chronic illnesses, uh, who require daily medications or those people who require dialysis, they have all been flooding the hospitals. Um, and uh, because of the lack of certain essential things that we all take for granted, such as uh, water, electricity, medical supplies and uh, medications, and even gasoline. Uh, gasoline is actually near the top of their list for things that, that they really want. Uh, they really cannot do a good job of treating all these uh, patients. And, um, uh, in fact, uh, they cannot treat the way that we treat them here uh, because they lack uh, those essentials. Machines don't work because of lack of electricity. Uh, tests cannot be done. They're writing out of medications, and uh, they must go out to uh, buy wholesale, uh, buy from wholesale companies, and yet they're unable to uh, get the medications um, because of the roads that, that have been damaged. Uh, also, uh, the hospital staff cannot go to the hospitals because, number one, uh, they use cars to get there, and yet they cannot have, uh, well, they cannot use their cars because of lack of uh, gasoline. And also the roads have been destroyed. So whoever is staying at the hospital is staying there the whole time. Yeah. And they've been overworked. And they cannot manage the patients as they would like to do. And in fact, many patients uh, who can be discharged have nowhere to go. Or they cannot go because of, again, lack of transportation. Right. So... Uh, Essentially, they're just triaging patients, those who are critically ill or need immediate medical attention. Uh, they have been transported to uh, other hospitals uh, by helicopter. Well, I think it's important for us to hear that message because a theme that has been playing through the media is, look how prepared Japan was. Look at the structure, the infrastructure for disaster preparedness that they already had and how well, they staved off worse disasters. And we know that Japan historically is no stranger to natural disasters since even our standard terms like tsunami are in Japanese. But do you think from your perspective that despite that historic familiarity, despite that infrastructure, there was only so much that the Japanese government and the healthcare system could do that the coordinated response could only go so far and now they're really in dire straits? Yes, uh, you're right. Uh, in fact, you're correct in saying that uh, Japan has faced uh, many disasters in the past. Uh, in fact, just in that area, this is the third big um, earthquake and tsunami 
in the past uh, 150 years. Uh, and also, with World War II, the entire nation was uh, destroyed. And they have always built back. Uh, but uh, uh, these people are probably the most well-prepared in terms of dealing with natural disasters. And uh, uh, as the doctor uh, previous uh, to this uh, session said, they have... Um, they train all the uh, all the people in the villages on uh, what to do in case of a natural disaster like this. And even the school children, they know exactly uh, what to do in, term, uh, in case of an earthquake or when tsunami comes. Uh, but and uh, they have built uh, certain uh, well, they have built a wall, in fact, along the coast where they had the tsunami. Uh, in order to uh, prevent the the villages from becoming flooded. But obviously they did not imagine that such a big tsunami would come like this. Right. Well, let me, let me say one thing and ask one question. First of all, on your website, you guys are collecting funds to rebuild some of the hospitals. I notice our listeners should hear that. I know that my Durham Society has already given you a contribution today. Oh, thank you so much. That. But we've been informed by the press that it's very quiet in Japan right now, that Americans are largely ignorant why there isn't more chaos or hysteria among the people. I think that has to go with the spiritual culture of the Japanese people. Can you comment on that for us? Yes. Uh, in general, the Japanese are orderly, organized people uh, uh, who believe in teamwork and perseverance. And uh, typically, they are not complainers. And uh, they usually follow directions that the authorities give. Uh, for example, uh, on TV, you probably saw long lines of people waiting to use the public telephones or long lines in front of hospitals to see the list of patients who were treated there so that they can identify those people um, or their family members who are alive. Uh, and uh, there's no looting or uh, rioting in those areas. So in general, the Japanese are very uh, peaceful people, and when they're faced with adversity, uh, they use uh, two phrases. One is shikata uh, ganai, which means it cannot be helped or it's inevitable. And the other is ganbaru, which means to do one's best moving forward. So generally their mindset is uh, uh, what's done is done and let's build on what we have and make the best of the situation. Well, Dr. Iwahara, we only have about one more minute, but we want to make sure you have a chance to talk about your organization. I mean, we know that your organization is eager to help and has set up some outreach efforts. Now, what's currently underway for you? Yes, uh, so on Sunday, we, uh, we set up uh, uh, on our website uh, the donation fund where one can, just, uh, one can donate uh, online. And uh, what we will do is uh, by... Um, by receiving all these reports from Japan, we, uh, we'd like to identify uh, medical needs and medical facilities uh, that need the most help. And then we'd like to uh, send 100% of the donations that we collect uh, to those facilities. Well, excellent, Dr. Iwahara. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you very much. Dr. Makoto Iwahara is a gastroenterologist and president of the Japanese Medical Society of America based in New York City. Dr. Iwahara, our thoughts are with you and your colleagues overseas. If you want to make a contribution to the JMSA, visit their homepage at www.jmsa.org.
If you're just tuning in, you're listening to ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. This is a special edition of Second Opinion Live on ReachMD. Today, we're focused on the crisis in Japan. I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg alongside Dr. Matt Bernholtz. And our third guest today is Dr. John P. Howe, not a stranger to our show, president and CEO of the Humanitarian Assistance Health Organization Project HOPE. Based in Virginia, Project Hope has responded in the past five years to natural disasters in Indonesia and Haiti, in the Sichuan province in China, and here in the States for the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. There's not been a deployment to Japan as of yet, but Project Hope, we understand, is assessing the need for medicine and other supplies, as well as monitoring the nuclear situation. John, welcome back to Second Opinion Live. Thank you. It's good to be back. Great to have you with us. So you had a chance to listen to Dr. Iwahara. What would you say are the greatest needs in Japan at this point from your perspective, and how is the country's healthcare system coping? Well, the, the, the needs are overwhelming, overwhelming. Uh, what we have is a, uh, uh, so to speak, a big elephant in the room, uh, the room being the humanitarian needs of the people, the elephant being the uh, radiation issue. So we have a community of a million people in Sendai with uh, lacking in food and water and power. Uh, and, and just last night, temperatures below freezing. Uh, at the same time, not far away, we have the uh, radiation levels that, that are high. And so we have a very unusual situation. Now, we understand that you're in close contact with some agencies on the scene, such as PH Japan, formerly Project Hope Japan. What are they telling you now? You're absolutely right. Uh, uh, we are fortunate uh, to be one of the few uh, organizations that have a close affiliate on the ground in Japan that can provide us with uh, in, uh, information. And the information is very compelling. Uh, the uh, hospitals in the region are in need, dire need of antibiotics, and in fluids uh, and other uh, medicines. At the same time, the, um, uh, they're not easily accessible uh, for two reasons. One, because the, uh, the, uh, much of the area is cordoned off, uh, and appropriately so. And secondly, because of the, uh, the uh, gas rationing, so that uh, some of the organizations that would wish to go north from Tokyo uh, uh, are thinking twice because of uh, the, uh, the real limitations limitations in uh, in getting there. But uh, uh, on a very positive note, uh, Project Hope is now in its 53rd year, and uh, as you mentioned, uh, this kind of, of natural disaster, uh, with the exception of the nuclear component, but this kind of natural disaster is something that we're very, very familiar with. It was uh, just 2005 when the chief of naval operations called us and said, I have a novel idea. What's not novel is to send the big white hospital ship, uh, the Mercy, to Bandachi and to uh, address the needs of that of those people uh, and, uh, and tremendous needs. Um, uh, and he said what is novel is that uh, we want to have the uh, uh, ship entirely staffed by volunteer doctors and nurses led by Project Hope. And that set in motion a series of responses. Uh, six weeks later, uh, another earthquake at Neos Island, just to the south, and the ship returned uh, to that area with tra uh, trauma surgeons and trauma nurses from uh, Project Hope. And it wasn't a few months later that uh, here in our own country, uh, the 
other ship, the sister ship, the Comfort, in Pascagoula, Mississippi, with volunteers uh, helping those in need in Jackson, Harrison, and Hancock County in uh, along the Mississippi uh, coast. And as you mentioned, uh, uh, some months later, uh, we were called to help in Sichuan Province with a major earthquake. Uh, about an hour and a half from uh, Dujangyang City uh, in the heart of uh, Sichuan uh, province. Uh, and then just um, uh, 14 months ago, it was Haiti uh, with a comfort, which had been uh, in uh, uh, Pascagoula responding to uh, Katrina, uh, was now deployed to uh, uh, to uh, Port-au-Prince. So but we, we, this is a uh, uh, something that uh, Project Opus had great experience with. Well, John, let me ask you a question. We can talk about this. We can give our listeners information, but I always like to get them in action, like we spoke about the Japanese-American Medical Society. So can people send you money to get materials over to Japan? Obviously, they're not asking us to come over there yet. So do you guys accept contributions? Without a question. Uh, I uh, encourage the viewers to go to our website, uh, projecthope.org, and, uh, and make a contribution. Uh, make it in the name of uh, the Japanese that have uh, been uh, uh, so uh, uh, much in suffering uh, from this uh, uh, tragedy. And uh, uh, again, as you mentioned, what P- Project Hope uh, is uh, very good at is uh, getting doctors and nurses uh, uh, to the area in need and uh, providing medicines and medical supplies. And the good news is that uh, the Japanese uh, government announced uh, in the past 24 hours that they would allow uh, foreign doctors and nurses uh, to respond. And so uh, we're working closely with our uh, a number of uh, colleagues, uh, traditional colleagues like the United States Navy, uh, to explore ways in which we can be helpful uh, so that the um, uh, support of, uh, uh, of your listeners would be very important. You know, all that aside, I mean, that's really important to know, but you're still dealing with a changing nuclear crisis that's clearly going to affect your assessment of your ability to help. I mean, is that going to hold your ship at bay, literally? Well, at this point in time, the, uh, the Navy is still uh, assessing the need for the ship. So it's important to point out that to, that final decision has not been made. It has not been made. Uh, but c- coming back to the assessment, no question, uh, it's, uh, it's a challenging environment. Uh, earlier today, uh, our, our team uh, reported that uh, uh, the radiation levels were such that the uh, fears were fanned as far to the south as Tokyo, and that, in fact, some of the embassies were evacuating their people from Tokyo to other areas farther uh, south uh, in, in, in Japan. So uh, there's no question but what the uncertainty with regard to the, the uh, nuclear reactor situation is a significant impediment to uh, are completing the assessment. That said, um, uh, again, Project Hope has uh, been uh, dealt with these kinds of situations for 53 years, and have every expectation that when the um, when uh, when that the re- reactor situation is uh, resolved, uh, we'll be there in spades with uh, significant ways to help. All right, John. We have less than a minute, but we need this answer. You've expressed particular concern for the healthcare needs of the elderly population in the northern parts of Japan. Why the elderly? And like I said, you've got about 50 seconds here. Yeah, 
Now, the, uh, the, the concern for the elderly is well-founded. Why? Because as we just experience, are experiencing in Sendai right now, um, with no power uh, and no food uh, and no water, uh, and then you have freezing temperatures, the most vulnerable are those that are in their 70s and 80s. So there's good reason for concern. Thank you. Dr. John Howe, thank you for joining us. Yeah, it's great to be back. We've been talking with Dr. John Howe, President and CEO of Project Hope, based in Virginia, a frequent guest to our show. Well-deserved. There's some important work going on. And, you know, we're going to be making the pitch to create, for our listeners to donate, Red Cross. Japanese American Medical Society. Japanese Project Medical Hope. Society of America. And, of course, International Medical Corps, but definitely Project Hope. Right. There's no question that if you donate your money there, that's going to be well spent. Yeah, come on, guys. Take your checkbook out now and write a check while you're listening to us because these people, they, they really need it. You know, Japan came and helped here in Katrina. Which a lot of people don't realize. Yeah, they don't realize it. The Japan sent people here. They spent money here. And Dr. Howe himself said turnabout is fair play. Right. So, you know, this is another one of these disasters where we really need to see the world as one unit, as one world. And, and as medical professionals, we're asking you to reach out to other medical professionals over there and please help them. They need money, they need supplies, they need your help. We can't go over there, but we sure can help buy the supplies that they need. Absolutely. And don't be sending blankets. Don't be sending <laughs> random things that you think or cans of food that you think are going to be directly helpful. That actually could impede their efforts out there, but they can definitely make use of cash. Right. Or no, And don't send medicines either. They have them there. They just need cash. They need gasoline. They need to buy stuff. They can buy it there. This is not like Haiti. It's a whole different situation. They've got a much stronger infrastructure, which will help overcome the situation a lot easier. So thank Absolutely. you, everybody. Well, we have to leave it there for this edition of Second Opinion Live. We'll continue to follow emerging issues in Japan on future shows, so stay tuned. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholz. And I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg. Thank you to listening. Thank you to everyone in our control room, as always. To access an audio podcast of the show, visit us at reachmd.com slash SOL. Donate today, please, and thank you for listening.